What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with CJU, head of Unscripted TV, Global Formats at Amazon Studios. He's one of my buddies. He's in my inner circle. We came up in the business together. As you're about to find out, me and CJU go way back. He was so helpful in getting me to where I got, which we cover very early in this episode. We talked about his days at Mark Burnett Productions and what he learned from Mark Burnett directly, how he was in the original pitch meeting for Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And we talked about now being at Amazon, the corporate principles of Amazon and how that translates to their decision-making process and analyzation of data. We talked about him setting up all these international productions that are under his purview. He's an international man of mystery. He's going to share some amazing travel hacks with you at the end of the episode. This is my sit down with CJU. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, it's day one. It's day one at Real Screen. You and I, we were out last night. There was a party being thrown. We ran into people we hadn't seen in forever. <laughs> CJ, it's like the boys are back in town. Seriously. The right? gang's back together. Right? Everyone's back. For better or worse. <laughs> Saw people I had not seen in person in the flesh and some of them like three and a half, four years. Totally. It was like a high school reunion, actually. It was. was and some any- people you're like, do I know you? Did we meet over Zoom last year? Like, I think I know you. You yeah. look taller in person or, you know. I had like six different people at this party come over to me and be like, I'm seeing a lot of people that I like. I kind of know, but I don't know the name. Like six different people. Totally. And I told them after like the third person, I'm like, don't worry. Everyone's in the same boat right now. I was telling our friend Cameron, Caddison, I was like, Cameron, I need someone to whisper in my ear like, do I know this person? Do I just meet them today? I don't know. So yeah. you kind of have to just be like, hey, how are you? Unless you're totally 100% sure and then feel it out in the first two minutes of the conversation. I saw, I saw Leslie Greif. Awesome. I got to have like 15 minutes with like the Godfather himself. That's awesome. That was fantastic. Like that's my favorite part. I, I just ran into like totally. John Seitzer at UTA and like have yeah. not talked to him in like forever, you know, and exactly. caught up. And then we're going to set time to like see each other back in LA. So it's the lesson here is people's, people are always like, well, I'm only going to like see the East Coast people if I'm an LA person when I go to these <laughs> things. But the truth is you're going to run into like all the LA people, and then you're right. going to see each other, and then you're going to make plans yes. for future meetings that you wouldn't have done had you not been here in the first place. Totally. I'm totally guilty of that. I literally told a lot of people, hey, guys, I'm prioritizing West Coast. Step know, a little Coast. closer to the mic. Just oh, give, sorry. Give, 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 yeah. I always tell people, yeah, I'm, I'm going to prioritize East Coast meetings and West Coast. You know, I'll see them in LA. But you're right. It's kind of like um, you know, when you work at the office, you see people in the hallway. Hey, the guy from BA or the lawyer is like, hey, I have, I have something I want to run by. You're like, cool, awesome. And it reminds you to set these catch-ups of right. people that if you were to do a cold email or cold text, it's kind of awkward. You haven't seen them in a couple of years. But if you're like, hey, I just saw you. Let's catch up. Awesome. Answer will always be yes. Now, we should start with a little, a little warning for the audience. that You are one of my oldest friends in this business. Right? I've known you for a very long time. Yeah. And, and we had this great moment last night where we ran into Jansen Noise. <laughs> okay? And... I don't think I've ever talked about this on the show, but Jansen obviously works in our end of the industry. And we were out and I was like, hey, CJ, has Jansen ever told you how me and him first met? And Jansen goes to explain to you that Jansen took over my desk at CAA. And I had never heard the story. Yes. The chain reaction. I don't want to spoil, you know, you tell the story. No, but this is just a great lesson of you never know what impact you may or may not have on somebody. And you also don't know whatever interaction you had with somebody years ago means to them to this day because Jansen was like Jimmy I've never like explained to you how much you training me on that desk meant to me oh yeah you know and and how and how I exited my desk at CA and and handed over to him and then my cousin who worked at CA who's now like a high-powered comedy manager you know befriended him totally and like my group of friends kind of embraced Jansen because he was like inheriting my fraternity over there and I never knew how much it meant to him right so I'm thinking this morning, as I'm on the treadmill at the beautiful JW Marriott uh, Fitness Center, I'm thinking about you and when I first met you and how you, CJU, are like indirectly responsible for why I even had the trajectory I had in the business. Well, no. I mean, you, you, no, it you, is true. you did that for yourself. You've been a champion from day one. But I, I, I am blessed to have met you. I think we all are. Well, but you, know. but you you need that person sometimes that's going to give you the the opening to have that interview that could change everything right and it was it was indirect in that 
I, I think, was it Alex Lynn who set us up? Yes, it was Alex Lynn. Okay. Yes, that's Explain right. Explain who Alex Lynn is for the audience. Okay, so a Alex Lynn now runs, uh, he's a bigwig over at uh, 88 Rising. I think that's right. And uh, we've known him for years. You know, it's funny. I went to UCLA with him, but he was a couple years older than me. He didn't know me. I knew him because I had applied to two internships that I was the final candidate. And they were like, oh, great. You're going to get it. Our interns leaving next quarter. And I get a call two weeks later. Oh, he's going to stay for another quarter. This guy, Alex Lynn. And I'm like, what? Who is this Alex Lynn? So he was like my arch nemesis that he didn't know about. This for is years. like UCLA Asian mafia yes. ne nemesis. 100%. Yes. And years later, when I met him, you know, through the assistant you know, network of folks when we're coming up, he was like, oh, it's so good to meet you. I'm like, you, I know who you. And obviously now we're great friends. It's all hilarious to think about. But that's how small the world is, you know, to your point. And it's all, it is about indirect relationships. I think I can count on, you know, more than two hands, the number of people that have helped me out. It's Some of it's opportunistic. Some of it's been just right place, right time. But, like, had that door not been cracked open a bit, had the person you met with, if they didn't have the kindness to say, you know what? I might know someone who might know someone to put yeah. this in front of. Yeah. And you're right. It means the world. It meant the world to me. It means the world to anyone, you, no matter how high up you are, that always comes around. You pay it forward yeah. when you can. Yeah. I mean, it's it's two things, right? It's, it's the old cliche that we say in our business, always take the meeting mm -hmm. because that meeting might not directly give you an opportunity, but they might give you somebody else's name, right? right? Exactly. So you always take the meeting and you always want to leave a meeting, maybe getting, if they can't help you, well, Get a, get a reference to somebody who, who might. Right, right, exactly. Number two, Hollywood is a big business, but a small town. 100%. Right. So you meet me at Literati Cafe on Wilshire <laughs> yep. off of like, was that Wilshire and Bundy? Yes, right, right by the Ralphs. And the you corner. tell me, you're like, hey, so I know you're like thinking about leaving CAA. Um, there might be an opening. I think, was it your desk? It was or my was desk. It? It was my, I had just gotten promoted, but I couldn't okay. leave the desk because we were burning through people that unfortunately were not up to my old boss, Roy Banks, standards. And you know he, has, he had pretty high standards. And where is this at at the time? What company are you at? Uh, at Mark Burnett Productions. So you're at Mark Burnett Productions working for Roy Bank, who at the time is running development for Mark. Yep. And it was to take over that desk. Right. And I had already interviewed at Revly, which was like my first choice, and I had not heard for like six, seven weeks. Mm -hmm. And you got me the interview. And literally, this was my first, and I know I've told the story here on the show before, I think, but this was my first lesson in like Hollywood leverage. <laughs> because I walk into that interview with Roy Bank and he offers me the job in the room. Right. And he asks me, are you still waiting to hear back from Reveille? Is that still your first choice? And I was honest with him. I'm like, well, I, I kind of, you know, because they do a lot of scripted and I want to be able to do both. Totally. He's like, I'm going to text Ben Silverman right now. And he texts Ben in the room and he goes, are you going to hire Jimmy Fox? Because if you don't, I am. Yep. And then his phone buzzes two minutes later and it's Ben telling him, yeah, we're going to offer him the job tomorrow. Don't don't hire him. And I had been waiting for seven weeks <laughs> and I had been told for seven weeks it's between me and one other guy. Right. And because I had an offer from Ben's biggest competitor, which was Mark Burnett Productions yep. or one of his biggest at the time. He immediately offered me the job. I maybe don't get the job from Ben if I don't have the other offer. And I've always thought about that. And I always think about what would happen. What is the sliding doors there if I start working for Roy Bank? Totally. Do I end up going to Merv Griffin with him afterwards when he leaves Burnett? Do I stay at Burnett? Am I at MGM now? I, I always right. think about how it's, different everything is. You know, is. it's so funny. I think about I think about that a lot, actually. And I, I always love when you tell the story because... I still remember at the time, you know, I was good friends with Matty Vasallo, who was on Ben's desk. Yeah. And you were on. He says, hey, I'm interviewing with Ben. I called up Matty. I was like, hey, what's the deal with this with this job? Like, I'm going to interview Jimmy Fox. We, we like him. He was like, oh, Ben doesn't know. He just doesn't know. I prepped Roy. I was like, Roy, we have a chance to snag this guy. Ben wants him. And so we're all kind of like in sync. But the fact that that ended up getting you the interview, I mean, the, the offer immediately was incredible. Yeah. And we, you know. Same for me, right? And by but, the way, I wasn't purposely trying to leverage. Oh no, no, no! Like I, I really was like, I can't wait around for these guys forever. I and, and Mark Burnett and working for Mark Burnett to me was like, oh my god, this would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was like I was, you know, there's this woman named Michaela Starr, who now works in the scripted side. She found my resume. I'd sent to blindly through this listserv from my friend's college, and I was like, they're looking for an intern for Mark Burnett. And I said, I'd love to apply. Applied for the internship, got it. Uh, was there for about a year in college, and I left to, I got offered an awesome job as a segment producer at E! News right out of college. Mm. So I took that. A year into it, you know, Roy and I kept in touch, and he was like, hey, you know, I've heard you're not super happy there. Like, would you be interested in coming back to Burnett? I said, yeah. He was like, well, I know you're a producer now, but 
I can only hire you as an assistant, mm -hmm. but I'll train you up, you know, a couple of years, get you off my desk and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'll take it done easily. And had he not pushed for that, same for me, what would I have been doing? Could I have been just a, you know, I could have maybe risen up the ranks at E through the production freelance world or right. been a very different person. Yeah. But I do think that like, you know, people take their long paths around and shortcuts in life, but you tend to end up kind of where you're supposed to end up. Yeah. So whether we took the best route possible, I guess we'll never know, but I'm, I'm happy for my career path and you are as well. <laughs> you should be. We're about to get into where you are now <laughs> in a second, but it's funny to think that mindset you had, you're already a producer. You already have a producer mm -hmm. credit so, so soon out of UCLA. Right. And yet you get offered an assistant job at Burnett and you take it. Right. And look, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be Clint Eastwood. <laughs> saying get off my lawn <laughs> and I know every generation of Hollywood has said this about the generation to come after them but CJ let's be real for a second it's hard for me to imagine in 2023 an assistant or someone at that level 23 year old fresh out of UCLA yep. that has a producer credit being willing to step down and be an assistant elsewhere like yep. what you and look you're right I, I don't see it happening anymore I don't think people understand the concept of sacrificing or Another better word is investing a year of your life right. to drop down a level or work at an agency. Like so many people are like, I don't want to work at an agency. I don't want to be an agent. I just want to go work at a network. It's right. like, dude, so does everybody else at your level. Totally. It's, an, it's, it's like I always think of like working at an agency or assistanthood. Sure. It's an extension of college. It's, it's your post-grad. Correct. Correct. But the thing with college, right, Let's using that same analogy, right, if you were going to a four-year university and you just went to class and went back and did nothing social, you've wasted your whole experience because part of it's building your network, making your friends, find those connections. And no one's trying to do it in a I'm using you or use, you're using me kind of way. You're just, trying to, you're just trying to build out your friendships, your base, right? And I think for me, coming from E, my mindset was I, I got in there. I was 22 years old. Everybody in our team was essentially our PAs were 26 years old. Our segment producers were 29 and 30. Our supervising producer was, I think, late 30s or early 40s at the time. And I was thinking, mm -hmm. wow, A, I'm super lucky to be here because the guy that hired me, this guy named Thomas Riggler, who I totally respect, was like, you know what? You're young. You're still in school. I'm going to give you a shot. You can edit. You can produce. Like, we're, we're doing, at, at the time at E, there were a lot of these shows called, like, you know, 101 Best Moments and Stunts. We were producing a lot of stuff in-house. So we were kind of like the, we would do new segments, we would do behind the scenes segments for shows that were currently on the air. We'd interview you know, folks like Joel McHale because he's doing The Soup, or we'd do Jen McCarthy, she did a show called Part of the Palms. We kind of became an extra second unit extension for some of these crews. But I realized I could be doing this for 15 years and not be even where our supervising producer is at. And that thought just, I don't think I can do this for 15 years. Mm. The same thing, there's no growth. Mm. And at least for Burnett, you know, for the, even though it was a, a step back because I'd be an assistant, I knew that those people cared for me. I built a lot of relationships there and it, it's like a family. I do, I do feel lucky because when I was there, this was around 2004 to 2008, it really felt like the golden era of that company, right? Yeah. Folks like Dave Eilenberg was a top producer there for us. He ended up running production. Now he's running Roku. Um, a lot of the showrunners we worked with were super, you know, they were at the top of their game. You know, Jay Beanstalk became my boss a second time when I was at Talpa afterwards. And these people that was we've Zoo, all met Was Zoo already there too? So I took the pitch with Roy for fifth grader. So John Stevens and wait, Dave you were, Wait, you were in that original pitch? Yes. I didn't know this. Oh, yeah. I was in the pitch. So I can't, I can't believe we haven't talked about this before. Oh, it's funny. Okay. There's actually, it's, it's funny. Like, I don't know how much I can say on your show here, but. You can we, say anything and we can, we can, we can edit it out <laughs> okay, later. Fair, change fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. So basically, uh, the way I remember it, there was a guy, there was a producer named Rob Dauber. He was the showrunner for a show we had called Martha Stewart Living. Mark was producing the Martha Stewart daytime show at the time. Oh, gee, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was good friends with uh, Barry and John. He said, hey, I have these friends. They have this game show. They're pitching out. Can you guys take the pitch? And Roy was like, oh, it's a favorite pitch. And we all been there, right? It's like, it's friend of friend. You have to take the pitch. But we're super busy at the oh time. God. We're developing other shows. And we're like, of course we'll take the pitch. We, we didn't know who these people were. We, we'd met them. Eventually, the meeting gets... And Rachel Brill was, I think, their coordinator. So we so were they, kind of like... So Zoo, at this point, are friends of the producer that's working on Martha Stewart. Correct. So it's like an internal, hey, my, my buddies want to come in and pitch this game show. Yeah, exactly. And okay. you, you, do, you take those meetings all the time, right? Because yeah. good ideas can come from anywhere. Right. So they pitched this story, this project to us called Take Your Money and Run. And for some, you know, we get pitches all the time. For some reason, this pitch, like, I'll never forget because it was so different from the final version of the show. Yeah. The show was basically, 
you have this big, you know, those wind tunnel money machines where like the wind, the yeah. money blows around, you take all the cash uh, in one minute, you get like, let's say 10,000 bucks worth of $1 bills. That becomes the money you have for the rest of the game to play. Then you have different, you know, questions that come around. Each question that you get, you have to assign a certain amount of your money to wager. My brain is exploding right now thinking this somehow turns into fifth grader. Well, the one catch, the one part that we thought, wow, this is really cool. And it was actually Roy who said this. He was like, you know what? There's something about, so the, the catch was all the questions from the game show come from an elementary school textbook. Oh. So the questions, so the answer, it's like the answers to the questions you think you know, but you don't. There's something relatable. And Roy was like, you know, there's something in that aspect of the show. So like, how many stomachs does a cow have? What state is Mount Rushmore in? What's the capital of North Dakota? Things that you're like, oh, I should know that. But you're like, actually, I don't, I don't know if I do. Yeah. And so, you know, we optioned the show from them. You know, I remember we were in a conference room with like John, Barry, Dave Eilenberg, Roy, me. And we're just like, how do we, and Ted, Ted Smith was there as well. Like, how do we break this show? Like, how do you make it into something new? And it kind of just distilled it to its simplest versions, which was elementary school textbooks, questions that you should know that you don't know the answers to. And how do you build the show around that? And that's kind of how it came around. And we, even when we pitched the show, you know, I remember we pitched the show around, it was Christmas week, like December 18th, it was the week before the holidays, right? Which is the worst time to pitch. Worst time to pitch. We literally, I wanna say it was either, must've been a Thursday, we pitched to Darnell, and the next day, that day we got an offer. And back then, for people who are new, people who worked in the industry like you and me for you know, almost 20 years, know that at the time, if you had a hot pitch, it was bought in the room. Yeah offer straight to series, yeah. which never happens. Or today. by the end of the day. Correct. Like you would get a phone L call. Literally. You, yeah. When we were setting meetings as assistants, God. you get calls from networks. Oh, can we be the first pitch, CJ? CBS, 10 a.m. Sure, of course. ABC calls. We don't be the first pitch. Well, we can maybe do 9.30. Someone else says 8 o'clock. Someone says we'll meet you the night before because they want to get the jump. And if you take the pitch off in the room, no one else gets to hear the idea. Yeah. And that's how special ideas are. We would sell shows on one sheet. <laughs> Literally. No, no. I mean, this is what would happen. We would spend maybe a week working, workshopping on like, a, you know, Mark would say, hey, I'm going show. Also, yeah. hold that thought. Because also, to explain, you're also working uh, for Burnett at the time. Mm -hmm. Hi. Uh, I think there was a mix-up with the room. I think, I think they're on the fourth floor now. Yeah. Somebody's... Walked in our conference room doing a live recording, <laughs> but that's the joys of real screen. Yeah, I think I think Love I'm moving it. rooms later in the day, so <laughs> I think I think somebody double booked the room. But anyway, this is this is at the time where you know, early 2000. Wait, 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 2004. Yeah. Okay. So there's only like a handful of players in this end of the business at this point. Right. It, it's not like there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of production companies like there are now. Totally. Burnett is the king, and Burnett it's like Burnett, Buna Murray, and and only a few other places. Correct. Right. So when you guys are taking out the pitch. It's like, yeah, we gotta we gotta buy projects from Burnett because right. who else are we gonna take pitches from, right? And we didn't pitch that much, right? Mm. We only pitched shows that we thought we could sell, essentially, because we had you know a building full of 500 people. They had to be employed. If a show was about to come up on its lifespan, we needed to sell another show to keep those people in house. That yeah. was kind of the unspoken mentality at the time. So tell me what you learned most from Burnett. Give me, like, I'm talking actual Mark Burnett. Sure, Not yeah. the company, but, like, being in Burnett's presence, maybe being in a, in a pitch room with him. I don't know how exposed you got to that end of it. Sure. But tell me what stands out when you look back now so many years later. Wow, that's a great question. I mean, I respect Mark so much. I, like, I think he has single-handedly had one of the biggest impacts on my life. I don't even think he realizes that, but he's always so, so kind. This is going back to the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, because you don't, people don't know. He he's someone who first time being in a room with him, I was like, wow, I was a big fan of Survivor. You know, I had just uh, uh, Apprentice season one had just come out, and I'm like in awe. I love all these shows. I'm obsessed. When you see him in a room, you see the way that he sells. It's he has this magnetic energy. I think Ben Silverman has the same thing, right? It's several people do in the industry, and when you're in that room, you feel it. You're like. How can I not trust you? And yeah. Mark ha is so, in many ways, humble as well. Yeah. Where he will always say at the time, he loves saying, you know what? I'm not great at what I do. I just hire smart people. I hire people that are smarter than me. He, yeah. That'd be the first thing he'd say in any interview, any meeting. And he sincerely meant that. Like, yeah. there, he was very sincere about that. And I think what I learned from Mark was, you know, if you are passionate about your ideas, don't, don't compromise. 
Right. When he sold Survivor, he could have sold that show probably pretty easily if the budget was a fraction of what it was and he compromised on the West Ham helicopters, the production value, but he knew the show to be done in a certain way to be done right. And I say it all the time at work now. I say, look, we're in a business where the AD is maybe worth 10% of the actual product, 90% is the execution. Mm-hmm. If you don't execute it correctly, you have a different show, yeah. right? Like we, we get pitches all the time, like a, most often, or I call them MOPs, most often pitched series. You know, I had wait, this, hold uh, on, wait, hold on a second. You haven't heard this before? MOP is an acronym? Oh, yeah. Most often pitched. Oh, my God. A, that's a MOP. Wait, hold on. Hold yep. on a second. This is a big deal. I've been, <laughs> I've been hearing people say mops the entire time I've been in this business, and I thought mop was just like a mop, like a mop you like use a on mop the floor. Like you're wa- yeah, wiping like the floor. Like it's just like you're cleaning the floor. Oh. The, I've always thought that's what mop stood for. Oh, I, yeah. I'm telling you right now, I can't be alone in this. I had no idea mop was an acronym. Most often pitched series. Or most overpitched. Oh, most overpitched, right. It could be either. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Okay. All right. All right. So keep going for this. That's, ma- that's amazing. I'm glad I, I, I got the I never, I never do this. All right. <laughs> so most overpitched, most often pitched show. And, you know, for a while, people were pitching a lot of talent shows. They'd say, great, I have a new show for you. Okay, give me the log line. Well, it's panel of judges, audition show, winner wins recording contract. And if you, if you pitch that to someone who doesn't work in TV, they'd say, that sounds amazing. That sounds like Idol. That sounds like X Factor. That sounds like Got Talent. Those are all big hits. But guess what? There's about 60 different shows that were actually pitched that way, produced, and aired at least a few episodes that never made it to the light of day after that. Right. And that is a mop, essentially. I don't know how we got on this mop. Uh, I think you, you, you got on the subject of what you see at Amazon. Oh, right. Yeah. So basically, like, you know, it's executions, everything. So we have a series, you know, we had in uh, Australia that came out a couple of years ago called Lux Listing Sydney. And I would say, you know, it's kind of our take on a million dollar listing meets selling sunset. It's more business stakes than soap opera stakes. And the show has worked like gangbusters. Like, mm. it's so many people watched it. People talk about it. More importantly, it's in the tabloids all the time. Mm. It's on drive time radio. Like, people are obsessed with the characters. And I sincerely think it's because of the way the show is executed. And, mm. you know, I nor anyone working the show cannot take credit for the origination because you watch it, you're like, oh, this feels a little bit like Selling Sunset. Feels a little bit like that show, this show. And sure. I think we've taken the best parts of what the shows have done, but done it in a market that's never seen it before. Mm. And at the green light, you know, we're pitching the show. And if you're familiar with an Amazon green light process, you have everybody at the table, all the stakeholders. You have the finance team, you have the marketing team, the PR team, the production team. You have people in Seattle chiming in. And some of those people are very adept in television. Some of them, you know, this is kind of like a, a different path for their career. So someone in the room said, CJ, the, the show you're describing sounds like just a basic Bravo show. Like, why would the show bring in new subscribers? What would work? I said, guys, we're going to use the best cinematography. We're going to have amazing visuals. We're going to have great pop music. It'll feel like a bubblegum MTV music video, basically, with a little bit of plot sprinkling here and there. And they said, do you think that's really going to work? And I said, yes, I, I know it will work. And it did. And, and other people have kind of tried mimicking this, pro- this project in Australia, mm. which we're flattered by. But the way they do the show, it's, it's different. You can call it a mile away, and it's just a different feeling. It's the same reason why a really amazing script show like House Hunters, right? I watch that show all the time. That scratches a very different itch than selling Sunset and Melinda are listing. Yeah. But people on, on paper say, oh, it's a real estate show. Yeah. It's the same. We can get some fancier B-roll, put some music in, but it's not really the same unless you actually have the same the goal in mind to make to have it. It's not the same unless you have a very clear vision of what you want to create at the end of the day. All right, let's talk about Amazon now because sure. we, we've segued there. I want to know everything. I want to know everything about how you got recruited to go there. Okay. What was the interview process like? I've spoken to a friend that works in scripted there, mm-hmm. and she kind of like gave me a little bit of insight, you know, the questions they ask you as you go through the interview process. Mm-hmm. Isn't there like a... Man, what is it? I don't know the terminology. I know you're going to tell me in a second. There's like principles. We have leadership principles. Leadership principles. Yep. All right. So Twelve. walk me through how that the leadership principles factor into the interview process. So, yeah. So basically, you know, when I worked at Mark Burnett Productions, uh, next door to Mark was an executive named Conrad Riggs, who was essentially Mark's business p- partner for many, many years. Um, and they no longer work together. But Conrad went over to Mark. To, sorry. Conrad went over to Amazon to head up. Uh, development at the studios and he was building a team and you know I've known him over the years and we didn't really keep in close touch so it was kind of a surprise when he when I heard he asked about me our our good friend Sudu Kim I think you know as well uh, you know said hey you know we have this opening are you interested in applying here's the job rec you know send me a resume if you're interested and I said you know 
I, I think I am. Like I'm ready to kind of go back in house to a big company. And a lot of the folks there were, you know, expert type people that I really enjoyed and cherished and respected. Uh, and so from there I said, okay, great. I'll, I'll put my hat in the ring. Like, why not? And that's when the work started. Like it, it's, <laughs> that's when the work started. That's when the work started. It was like preparing for that interview felt like, you know, I've never, I, I've never done a PhD dissertation before, but it felt like you're literally just, you know, opening up your entire life, all the, achievements you made at every job, mapping them to leadership principles, that, that, that in itself was like probably one of the most stressful parts of preparing for the job. And you talk to people today, and it, I feel like if you were coming into it without any preparation at all, it'd almost be impossible to get hired. And to your point, you know, when we hire people at Amazon, we're looking for executives who can raise the bar. We call them bar raising, right? What that means is if you're coming in at a certain level, you need to technically be better than the existing people on the team. Mm -hmm. That's the mentality. Mm -hmm. And how do we how do we vet that? You know, we have multiple leadership principles at Amazon, and essentially the questions they ask are a variety of questions that relate to your success and accomplishments at work, and they have to be data focused. And so, over the course of one day, you might meet I think it's like five or six people you're you're interviewing with over the course of six hours. They're lined up back to back to back with a short lunch break in between. Six hours of meetings. Yes. During the interview process. Correct. Okay. So now with you know post COVID, we do a lot of this by video, but before it was all in person. So no matter where you lived in the world or the country, they'd fly you into LA if it's an LA based job, Seattle if it's a Seattle based job, and you you basically run through the gamut. You know they ask you questions like you know tell me about a time when X happened at the office and how did you react to it? What are some data points that you have to back it up? Was it successful? So they're pretty broad reaching questions that are focused on individual leadership principles. And you have to prove that you have a thorough understanding and examples of how you excelled in those areas. What other principles? Oh, uh, you're gonna put me on the spot. Okay. Oh, do you, yeah. do, you, <laughs> no, have, no, yeah. do you know so, them all? So, yeah, no, we have, we have you know, I, we've got uh, disagree and commit. Have backbone. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What was that? What is that? So have backbone. Disagree and commit is one of them. Disagree and commit. Disagree have, and commit. Okay. Have backbone. So it means you know, um, on one hand, if you believe in something, you want to state your case. You want to actually be uh, very. Str it's okay to be strong about your opinions. Okay. But at a certain point, if you know, let's say you and a fellow colleague at your level have this, have a disagreement on a strategy or a way to do something, it gets elevated to your boss. Right? Got it. They are the tiebreaker. They decide. And ultimately what you're asked to do is disagree and commit. Meaning I may still not believe that's the best way to go, but I will set my personal opinion aside right. and I'm all in. Right. We're going to work together to make this a success. Okay. And that's what we mean by disagree and commit. So that's one of them. Another one is, um, you know, be vocally self-critical, you know, be you know, self audit yourself, know when you're wrong, admit your mistakes and learn from them. Right. We're, we're rewarded for taking risks, I don't think we're punished by taking smart risks. Mm. So, you know, there's, 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 a, there's a handful of other ones. There's, you know, I should know this because we just had our annual reviews. We have to talk about this. Give me lot. one more. Uh, learn and be curious. Okay. Invent and simplify is another one. Okay. And they're just basically ways that we look at how to operate within the ecosystem. And it's funny because, like, when you first start Amazon, you're like, oh, you know, we all work for companies where there's, like, the motto or the mantra or whatever the things are thrown around. We actually practice this every day. The meetings we get thrown around. And That's what I was going to say. This still comes up when you submit a project or whatever. It right. still goes through the lens of these principles. Always. Always. Well, at least in the way that we're operating. Right. Right. So when we're looking at shows, so, so one, of the, one of the most important principles we have is to be customer focused. Customer obsessed is what we say. So we're looking at customer obsession. So some principles trump others. Mm. So you might have a conflicting way to do something. You might say, okay, well, we want to do the show, but maybe, you know, uh, frugality is another principle to be frugal, like spend your money wisely. So let's say we're in we're a situation where I want to license a great song for this opening sequence in this show. I think the customers are going to love it. This is going to draw them in. They're going to love it. It's going to be something extra special they'll really appreciate. That's a customer obsessed view. Frugal view would say, well, hey, we can do a library song for a lot less. Do you really need that track, CJ? And sometimes you might say, you know what? You're right. We can go another path and get the same result. Other times I might say, no, we have to do it. And whatever the end result is, you will disagree and commit if it didn't go your way. And hopefully your colleague will disagree and commit and go your way if they didn't get what they wanted. All right. So the job itself mm -hmm. that you applied for when Conrad set you up. Sure. Explain for the audience like what your like section is of sure. the unscripted business at Amazon because I don't think people necessarily will know how the international 
projects that you're working on are part of or not part of the same team that Chris runs at Amazon. Sure, yep. Explain the flow chart. Okay. So I'll try to do my best. And it's always changing. So I'll say this is January 2023. <laughs> if you're listening to this months later, it might not be relevant or might have adjusted again. But uh, when I started at Amazon on Conrad's team, you know, there were no international groups or teams, right? All of our shows were being commissioned out of the U.S. All of our original shows were being commissioned. We had a variety of folks outside the U.S. that were our licensing teams. They'd buy finished tape. They would buy limited licenses, limited windows for their markets. And as we all know, this is back, you know, five years ago. At, well, sorry, let me just sure. bring that back. I think we'll explain this more clearly this way. So when Conrad first brought me in, he was building out a team of unscripted executives. Okay. So my job as a creative executive was to commission, develop, look after, and supervise shows that were on our slate essentially. Um, at the time, you know, and this was your first buyer job, right? It was my first buyer job. Yeah. Before that I had always been at production companies, always been selling or working as a producer or developing biz dev. Exactly. Biz dev going between biz dev, creative development, you know, worked in media advertising for a few years, doing branded content as well. And it was the first time being on the buyer side. It's funny because when you first start out, right. Every pitch you hear is like, Oh, that's a novel. That's interesting. And then after a while, you're like, a lot of these are, are mops. They're shows that have been pitched a lot before, but you kind of just learn that as you get into it. But in the beginning, a lot of our shows were sports-centric shows. We, we had a big show in the air called The Grand Tour. That's still on the air today. We had a lot of sports documentary-type series that were access-driven. So we were basically managing, developing those kinds of projects. At the time, that's what the mandate was, essentially. Yeah. And also award-winning shows. Yeah. Shows that would, that would win us you know, Emmys and Academy Awards. And um, you know that, that started evolving when we got calls from our colleagues in Spain and in Canada. They said, you know what? It's harder and harder for us to buy licenses for third-party shows because a lot of these production companies and networks and streamers are building their own OTTs. Right. So we see it's not going to happen tomorrow, but in the years ahead, we have to start developing our own shows. How do we do that? So, you know, we would have an introductory call with, uh, you know, we had a colleague, his name is Ricardo Carbonero. He's in Spain. He runs um, our prime video business in Spain now. And he said, you know, I want to do originals. Like, how does this work? And we said, okay, well, based on your timeline, you know, if you're doing scripted, it's going to take you two or three years to get off the ground. Unscripted, we can be on the air in maybe 12 months, mm. right? So let's start with that first. Mm. He's like, how does that work? We kind of walked him through the process. You know, I'd fly out to the market and take some meetings with him and figure out what are some of the opportunities we have. We'd identify a couple of projects and we'd just start working together. And Conrad had said, you know, is that work kind of mounted? He said, And you're hey. loving this because this is almost more like a seller's job. Yes, right. Exactly. This is more like kind of a, developing. This a is a developing bit. studio job. This isn't necessarily a buying role in that conversation with Spain, at least, right? We. It's, it's funny. It's kind of a dual role to your yeah. point, right? Because in these other markets, they might say, "Well, this is actually this happened." We had an, a you know meeting with Sergio Ramos, who is one of the you know most well-known soccer players in Europe, definitely the most well-known in Spain. He was captain of Real Madrid, captain of the national team. They pitched us a project, and I said, "You know, it was a documentary project," and I said, "You know, this shows." Sounds really boring, Sergio. And he, he laughed because everyone's gone awkward. They're like, wait, what? I said, look, you literally have 40 million followers on Instagram. You're on TV every single week. What is the story we can tell about you that hasn't been told yet? And he was like, okay, get what you're saying. And I said, well, what if, stay with me, you and your celebrity wife, who his wife, Pilar, was the top, top on-air presenter in Spain. What if we did a reality show with your family and exemplified the things you want to talk about, right? In this documentary, he said, like, I want to show to my kids what I was like in my prime. I'm going to show myself as a dad, the family values, the upbringing, the discipline I have. I'm a great athlete, but I am successful because of my ded- dedication, not because of my born abilities. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? We can do that. Yeah. We can craft a show. We can show a simple conversation around you and Pilar at the breakfast table, making breakfast for your kids, having a conversation about what happened the night before. People will find that fascinating. So it was an opportunity to kind of turn around a very standard project on its head. And we did that again and again because coming from the U.S. market, we see it all, right? And I think some of these other markets, they have great producers, great talent, but maybe these just haven't done TV the way that we've done it. Right. So slowly but surely, more and more people start raising their hands. People in Italy, people in Germany saying, hey, how do we do more of this? And Conrad eventually said, hey, um, is there anybody on the team who wants to help us out? We're doing a lot in South America. Um, who wants to kind of dive into that? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And I had a couple of colleagues at the time, I won't name them, who were like, CJ, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna do that? You're going to be so far away from the U.S. market, you're going to lose your contacts. I said, no, like, 
you know, these are friends I've made for 15, 20 years. Like they'll always be there. But to me, this is something exciting. And before we knew it, the demand grew more and more. There was a chance uh, to actually take on a new role, which was to be head of Unscripted for Latin America. Mm. So I had then jumped from the U.S. team into a newly formed Originals International group mm. to be head of Unscripted um, for, uh, for, for Latin America. Eventually, I'll spare people the, the details, but we had a bit of a restructuring. Um, you know, our current leader, James Farrell, who's our head of global uh, local originals, uh, came in and, you know, he was coming from Japan and he was coming out to LA and I say, hey, James, like, you know, you're coming back in a few months. You have a new role now. You're my new boss. Um, what can I do to help as you get settled in? He said, well, you know, I don't know. Like, what do you think? Like, I, I, you know, he's worked in the business for a long time, but he wasn't really focused on unscripted. And he said, what do you suggest? And I said, well, look, now that we have, you know, at the time, 10 or 12 countries that are coming under your purview, I think what you probably want to avoid is you, you don't want to develop 12 versions of a singing show, 12 versions of a cooking show. You should probably have a centralized team here to figure out, okay, what are the priority formats we're going to optimize mm. and double down and do that everywhere, mm. right? And he said, that makes sense. That, that actually sounds like a good idea. Like, okay, so do you want to keep your current job as head of Lat Amon scripted or would you rather take that job? And I said, I'd rather take that job. Right. Running formats for Amazon sounds amazing. And right. I, I come from the format world, right? I've been lucky enough to work at Mark Burnett Productions, at Talpa, at Indemol. And these are all broadcast-heavy format shows. Yeah. And that's the world that I'm most comfortable. And I think stuff with docu-soaps, and this is the tangent, I don't think, I think there are very, very, very few, if any, creative execs today that work in TV that had strong experience doing docu-soaps prior to this decade, yeah, right, because there wasn't demand for it. If you're doing documentaries, you were a filmmaker. You weren't working at a cable network or in TV. Maybe you're working in news, but even though the process is very different. So most of us that worked in TV for a long time, you either came up through the broadcast, game show, competition series space, or you came up through the Bravo type of like docu-soap space. Yeah. But true crime docs, hard-hitting docs, that's a very, very new thing. Yeah. And so, um, anyways, long story short, so I ended up taking on that role a few years ago, and our our, our you know, our remit just expanded, grew and grew. And so now we have a small team based in LA. Uh, I, on one hand, we are essentially the proxy for new markets that don't have local development teams. Right? Countries like Australia, like uh, Nigeria. New markets we're growing in Southeast Asia. We'll lend a help. New markets hand. mean new Amazon markets. Sorry, new Amazon markets. Right. New local these language Amazon markets. local language territories that are on the Amazon platform in these countries that don't have a team out there to develop their own formats and whatnot. Exactly. So you guys will find a format by multiple means, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. They could be a U.S. creator. They could be from one country where a creator comes in there. Exactly. And you pilot it in that country, and it works. So now you can try to reformat it and select production teams in the other countries to run those shows, right? Like, it happens in multiple ways, I'm Correct. guessing. Correct. It's yeah. funny because back when I was at Endemol, right? You Endemol must love this, really though, because I, I, cause you have the ability now to hand-select the teams in these countries, like you were talking about, mm -hmm. how you have like the best cinematography and all this and for your Australia show. Right. You have the ability now to say, all right, we're going to launch this format or this original concept in this country, and I'm going to handpick the executors exactly. in each territory. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's funny because back when I was at Endemol, Endemol was doing this a long time ago. So were yeah. other production companies. We had a big hub in Argentina. Yeah. They had a Wipeout hub. They had a Fear Factor hub. Yeah. They had a Big Brother hub at one point, I think. And, you know, I've always respect. It's like... That the cost, the scale of efficiencies is so great in some of these markets. And a lot of U.S. producers and networks don't realize that. Mm. So me coming to this, you know, I'm always looking at how do I find success for a local show? And how do I protect that IP, right? There's certain shows, we always say timing's everything, yeah. right? We are talking about this last night. I think Farmer Wants a Wife is great. Great example of that. Format's been around for a very, very long time. Yeah. It's recently had a resurgence around the world. And the show hasn't changed that much but I think people have. And for whatever reason, it's, it's striking a cultural chord in many markets. And so timing is everything. So when I look at a new format, it might be a dating show, might be a cooking show, might be a comedy competition show. I'm always looking at if it's a first time execution, the first time we're launching the show, I want to make sure we're set up for maximum success. So I'm going to launch it in a country where there's enough producers to execute it well. Mm. It strikes a chord. We, we know it'll strike a chord to the local customer base. And so if we can babysit that show and really give it the full white glove treatment, we can will it to succeed to a certain extent. And that's not because of me, because of our teams, because we have the right combination of producers and partners in that market too. If that works well in one market, we do another market. If it works well in two markets, it's a lot easier to say, you know what, guys, we're doing this in five markets next right. year or 20 markets. And right. that's kind of our, you know, that's my soft pitch for why people should do shows with Amazon. Because on one hand, you're like, oh, 
We want to take global rights. Oh, we have to get all these different things that we need to own. But the reality is, is if you sell a show to us, there is more of a chance of us doing it in 20 markets worldwide than if you sold it to another broadcaster right. here. Right. And you'll participate in an upside. Right. Dude. You, but honestly, how happy are you? I'm having a blast. Be- because like, if anybody knows you and your friends know, travel is your first passion. I do, I do love a good trip every now and then. <laughs> right, so now you have, it is in your job description to go to these countries, be on the ground, work on these shows, meet all the folks. This is like the greatest like, like intersection of like personal passions and professional interests I've ever seen in any of my friends that land a job. <laughs> I've been, I mean, look, I've been really lucky. And I think you know, Amazon's in a period of growth. Yeah. And even though the travel isn't always perfect, you know, we fly economy to most places, you have to get yourself upgraded. There's a lot of different strings yeah, I'll, that come I'll, up I'll, attached to that. Wait, we'll I want to go there in a okay. second. Okay. I, I want to get CJU's best travel <laughs> tips before we leave the show. Sure. Yeah. I'm happy, happy to share. But I think, I think for me, you know, I do have to remind people like traveling for work is different than traveling for pleasure, right? Yeah. If you're traveling for work, I always tell my team the same thing. You might be in a country for four days. We're in back-to-back meetings four of those days. If you have two hours to spare before the airport, or if you happen to have a free morning on a Saturday before going to set, do something fun. Do something to experience the fact that you're in this other city, whether it's doing a jog through a park, yeah. going to a museum for an hour. Yeah. You have to do that. Otherwise, you will just be in a hotel to set, to hotel to set, and you will hate it. Yeah. Right? Flying 15 hours of somewhere isn't great. If you're on vacation, and you think I was like, like this past winter holiday, I was off vacation for a couple of weeks. Every day I was like, this is so great. I can do whatever I want. There's no schedule. It's, it's like backpacking through Europe when you're out of college yeah. versus on a business trip. You may have an opportunistic small window to do something fun and you should do it. But otherwise, you're just in your hotel room or at the office all day. All right. Give me the tips. Traveling with CJ for dummies. Okay. Like, I know we can't go through all the intricacies <laughs> okay, of, of what you know over the years with mileage and points sure. and all that. But give me like three basic fundamentals of how people step up their travel game. Okay. And again, everybody in our group of friends knows this about CJ. Like everybody <laughs> knows that CJ somehow will always end up getting upgraded on flights, somehow always gets upgraded. You got upgraded this weekend. You I were did, tell- right. last night where you were tell- um, you're not staying at the JW, you're staying at another hotel off, off the property. And you were like, oh yeah, they upgraded me and I got I have a suite and I have this great corner room. Of course you did. Like this <laughs> somehow always happens and i know it doesn't just magically happen. right it's funny it's funny you say that because you do have to be very strategic right and i am a big travel hacker i've been doing it for probably 15 20 like as long as i've been out of college i've been travel hacking hoarding points trying to you know optimize the system you have to enjoy it though right because it's not actually worth your time like i could be totally <laughs> happy on a sunday afternoon going through five different travel websites booking plans booking systems to figure out what is the cheapest good value hotel I can have with highest potential for upgrade. Yeah. Same thing for the flights. And you kind of have to play the game. It's a little bit of a gamble. Okay. You might fly on an airline with a not ideal routing, but if you know if you can get upgraded, that over, you know, that compensates for the routing. How, okay, so like, for example, let's, let's start there. Sure. I'm, I'm starting this and I want to start my travel hacking days. What is the one airline or credit card, you know what I'm saying? Oh, or, sure. Par- or partnership? Well, actually, you know, I should go do first. I almost think that's too granular. Like, like there's a lot of credit cards okay. out there. A lot of people talk about this online. But I would say is like, I'll, I'll give you an example. If you know you want to go to Europe this summer on yeah. vacation, right? And make up a country. What's your favorite country in, in Italy? Europe? Italy. Okay. So you look at the flights, the flights to Rome and Milan. They're very expensive. But if you know Europe, most countries are an hour flight from each other. So if you're willing to have some level of flexibility, don't look for flights to Italy. Look for flights to France. Spain to other countries, you might find a crazy deal to Madrid. Mm. And if you're willing to take that extra flight to Madrid and join another city for a day or two, mm. you can then do a cheap flight from Madrid to Italy. Mm. So it's all about being flexible and being open to opportunities. Like if you if you know you want to go to these cities on these dates and this month, you're not going to get those deals. Right. If you're flexible and willing to kind of let you know. But do you have like one airline that you yeah, tend to work so for, with the most? For me, you know, I, I fly American and Delta a lot. Okay. Um, they're just great for where I need to travel. If you, if you do a lot of work in certain markets, certain airlines are better for you, right? right. So you do want to be loyal to an airline. You don't want to hop around. You want to be, because it, as you know, if anyone who's flown in the last year, it's like feast or famine. Yeah. You either get stuck in the middle of the seat with no choice or you get first dibs and see, sit wherever you want on the airplane. So you want to be loyal, number one. Number two, you want to be flexible. And number three, you, you want to have an open mind for what your experience will be. Right. I think that open-mindedness will take you far. I think people who go to a city who are hell-bent on doing this thing on this day, 
half the time that might not live up to your expectations. But are you booking American and Delta straight through them? Are you accruing points through like a credit card that you use for each? Do you have like Amex Platinum sure. and that's why you like so Delta? So for, for personal travel, I, I, I do. I use like my Amex, my, I use my American Airlines Amex for American Airlines flights. American Airlines Amex? Yes. Okay. And Delta, same thing, right? Okay. But for work travel, we, we book through our work system. Okay. Uh, but I do, I'm pretty loyal to the airlines that I travel Got it. because they upgrade you and they give you, you know, grace. If you're running late for a flight, they might hold the plane for you. If you really? miss a connection. Oh, yeah. Let's talk hotels. Okay. Is there one hotel chain that you find is like the best Marley Price but great rooms for the, pri Absolutely. For the price? Absolutely. I think Hyatt and Marriott are pretty good. Hyatt right now is my most preferred hotel group because they're great with points, great with upgrades. Now, do you have Services a Hyatt credit card again? Yes, you always. Do. Yep. And that's through who? Uh, through chase so, I you, think. so you like only spend that when booking at a hyatt yes exactly okay it's not about like using it all the time and you No, because you want to optimize right? it's like right. it's about travel hacking so right. i always say like the way i do travel on the side whether it's for work or for personal travel i treat my travel plans like a sudoku puzzle so if you can enjoy sitting at home and doing sudoku or the new york times you know crossword puzzle yeah. that's my mental flex like <laughs> Finding out the magical solution to find the right flight with the right timing and the right, you know, whatever bookings and seats, that's fun for me. You have to enjoy that or else it's not actually I, worth your time. I don't, I don't care if anybody's enjoying this conversation <laughs> or not. I, I, I am. So I'm going to ask one more question. So with the Hyatt, yep. are there specific brands of hotels under the Hyatt umbrella and that's why you like it? Or are you staying at, is it always Hyatt proper? Because uh, I, don't, I don't know enough about the hotel. Yeah, groups. so I'll try to stay at, well, it doesn't matter. So whatever hotel you have in the portfolio is all the same. I'll only, yeah. usually look at value. But does Hyatt have other branded differently hotels in, under a Hyatt? They do. So like the, the Thompson Hotel oh, so is a Hyatt, That's what I was going right? to get to. Yeah. Okay. So the Thompson is a Hyatt-owned property. Correct. Got it. So, okay. So that's one of the many examples you have of like Hyatt options. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's okay. boutique hotels. There's Hyatt chains. But the thing is like, you know, Marriott's great too. It doesn't matter really who you choose as long as the cities you go to have a lot of those hotels. Right. So if you go to like... Asia, for example, there's a lot of Hyatts. If you go to oh. South America, there's uh, more Marriott's, not as many Hyatt's. Mm. So you kind of have to figure out where your travel takes you and kind of double down on where you think you'll be able to use the points. You're, you're, you're going to do this professionally one day when you're all done with the TV stuff, right? Like eventually, <laughs> like you could just be a consultant for hire. You could go do a speaker panel. You could just like start a TikTok and just be you like... You know what's funny? If I, I, is, is this a flooded market since you got into this? I think this? it's super flooded. Are there I a lot, think, you know, there there's a lot there's of travel a guy, There's a guy named Brian who's the points guy, right? I got a chance to meet him once. He, he literally is the poster child like points travel yeah. hacking and what he's done is amazing people always oh, you start a blog CJ. the reality is is a lot of these blogs exist like i don't need to do it. it's already out there yeah I, I do it for fun it's like you know when you take photos for vacation or home video yeah it's fun when you sit home and try to edit them for whatever purpose it becomes work right and so if i oh, were to treat this like work i would hate it like i started out as a producer editor right and there were some jobs where i was literally editing my own sizzle reels mm. at Burnett, also at Endemol. And I liked it, but at a certain point I was like, wait, I don't want to be an editor. Like, I don't mind doing it sporadically, but yeah. this is your everyday. I, some people love it, and mad respect, I love editors, they're amazing. I couldn't sit in a bay every day, 40 hours a week and do that day in right. and day out. Right, I get it. So it stops becoming a hobby and a passion and it becomes work the second you start. Right, it's like, I like flying drones on vacation. I'll bring a drone yeah. with me and different cameras and like, that's fun. But if you said, okay, CJ, you're now, your whole income and livelihood is gonna come from drone operating, that would be super stressful. Like, I would be so stressed out. Okay, I'm let's leave it here, because this is one last topic I want to have with you, because you mentioned drones. Mm -hmm. I really think there should be a whole section of TV Academy nominations for Emmys for just drone work. <laughs> I agree. It's so prevalent right yes. now, especially yes. in documentary. You could have, like, drone for documentary. Totally. Drone for, like, scripted. Totally. Because I watched, I think the first time I ever thought about this was the Michael Jackson... HBO. Oh, yeah. Neverland right. one. And they showed the drones outside the building. It was all drones. Yes, exactly. Like, if you actually watch that documentary, yep. I want to say it's like the pie chart is like 35% drone. Totally. Right? Like 35% interview. Building exteriors. Right. Century City. But instead of just a fixed exterior, which would be the norm, yes. they have a floating shot of that yes. building that he lived in. You're like, oh, wow. that's. I was like, how many times have I watched a drone shot of Simi Valley? You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I was like, there were so many of them. And it'd be like, oh, yeah, like 15 seconds at a time. It's, it felt. And I'm like, and then I, and I'm starting to watch more of these shows and I'm watching like Hard Knocks. And I'm, I'm like, right. drone operator, it's a totally, it's a specifically hired 
Yes. Person on your staff. It's right. separate from the rest of your crew. But you know what's so funny? Why no, is there not a drone category for nominations? There totally should be. There totally should be. For, I, un, I, under I the directing. To, I got to talk to Bob about this, you right? You should. Bob will set it up. We've yeah. got, I mean, it's funny because back in the day when I worked at Burnett, you know, I'd say Mark was probably one of the pioneers in West Cam photography. West Cam meaning helicopter videography, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. All the shows. Survivor. There's a show called Casino. Like, amazing aerial shots. Yeah. Because before, drones didn't exist. You had to spend tons of money to get these beautiful shots now they're accessible to everyone right but to your point it's funny like you wouldn't believe i think drone photography like poor there's no excuse for poor drone photography in any show because there's so much talent out there yeah and if people that worked with me on shows are listening to this will laugh because i am very persnickety about drone footage <laughs> and i I'm an amateur drone guy, so I'm not great. You're the worst executive for the drone people. Oh, 100%. Because you shoot your own on the weekends. Yes. yes. And so if their stuff isn't at least as good as mine, I'm like, this is unacceptable. Like, right. I'm an amateur. You're a pro. You should be great. And some who are amazing. You know, you've seen it in the opening of the Kardashians, right? The yeah. FPV drone that flies into people's homes and zooms out all the way. Like, that's really, really awesome. I love where they're pushing that. Yeah. I, I, I could watch it for hours. Right. Dude, this was awesome. How about this? How about this? I'm sorry I didn't get you on sooner. No, I mean, dude, one of my so one, one of my oldest Thank friends. You for me. I should have had you on early early days. Oh, and by the way, I should have started today off. Congratulations on the big announcement this week. Uh, Legend of Sports. Yeah. Great deal. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, that's amazing. What it's a exciting. great marriage for you. It's cool. It's exciting. Yeah, I think I think the thing I'm gonna have the conversation I'm gonna have to have over and over with certain people is them not thinking I just do sports now. You right. know what I mean? Which I get, because like the mother company is religion of sports, but like that's why it was important to me to maintain the main event media right. branding of my well, my company and it's like my very team. Smart, right? Because yeah. you were ingrained with pop culture, right? And even the way the announcement was, it was clear you're going to bring a new flavor to what they're doing, expand their slate. That's what, and that's that's the next phase for the Super company. Smart. So I think over time, like you, you know, they might launch other companies that are like religion of food or religion of music. Oh, genius. Like they're, they, that's how they want to expand over time. I'm just one of the first companies they're bringing in as part of the expansion. But, right. but pop culture is key. Right? I, I tell people, I, have, I gave a presentation last week at work and I was like, guys, how do you, how do you like amp up your development for unscripted aligned with pop culture? Yeah. That is literally the best way to succeed. Yeah. Dude, thanks for doing this. You're panel. doing it. Thank you. This is fun. You, you doing panels or what are you doing? Right uh, now? I'm doing a game show panel this afternoon. I think. Oh really? With like Phil Gurren and uh, J.C. Mills and oh, Jenny really? Daly and yeah. Gurren's here. Yeah. Oh. He's, uh, he. I think he's either competing or he's going to be the host. I, for, I forget. I got a flat. I got a wait. Wait. What do you mean competing? Are you playing an actual game show? Yeah, oh. like a game show on you're, like you're like you should have been in it. It's a game show about uh, unscripted reality TV business knowledge. Oh God, I love this. I Wait, know. what day is this? Today at two o'clock. Okay, I might need to pop down. That's <laughs> like that's so that's so up my alley. Oh, that was the way to move this because I had the that's exact right. same, same slot we're supposed to speak, and I was like, oh crap, this is one hour. I, I can't adjust. Go kick Gurren and JC's ass. That's my goal. That's my goal. Thanks, dude. Thanks, buddy.